A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another episode of the Self Build Plus podcast, where we chat with self builders, suppliers, and experts about all things home building and renovating in Ireland on both sides of the border. I'm Astrid Matson, your host and the editor of Self Build Magazine. Today, I am joined by Dr. Kira Hearn, who's an engineer and a senior lecturer at TU Dublin. She's been crunching numbers for the Irish Building Stock Observatory to gain a better understanding of the energy performance of the building sector. So Kira is here today to chat about what the best options are for people who want to upgrade the energy efficiency of their home and what changes are coming from Europe in the form of the recast energy performance of buildings directive a real mouthful anyway so Kira thanks really for joining us and uh, we'll start off with the energy upgrade side of thing so can you give us an overview of what the difference is between a shallow versus a deep retrofit we hear these words bandied about bush just to give a bit of clarity on that yeah sure um it, to my mind the difference between a shallow and deep retrofit is a deep retrofit should allow uh, the retrofit of a heat pump um, um, and the house conditions or the dwelling conditions should enable at that heat pump running at a reasonable cost. So a shallow measure, it maybe is a measure that might make a deeper measure more difficult or expensive. So a shallow measure would lock in, you know, locks in a suboptimal retrofit maybe. And so a heat pump needs an airtight dwelling it needs um high levels of efficiency of the fabric and it needs a low surface temperature um, system so all that needs to work together for the heat pump to run at a reasonable cost okay so then yeah so then our shallow stuff would be what we would have all done to put um a bit of insulation in the attic maybe and something like that that wouldn't be enough to make the house um good enough for for a heat pump then so how how good does a house need to be for a heat pump there is there is a measure isn't there like there is you need to reach a certain like how much how much insulation do you need to put into a house for that to happen how how airtight and how insulated you have to go and spend the 60 grand or whatever those figures are in terms of that 
Yeah, it depends on your house size, I suppose, because you're dealing with the meter squared of the house and insulation fitted to that meter squared of the house. The smaller the house, the easier it is kind of to achieve on a cost. But you do need, you know, significant levels of insulation. So the roof wouldn't be enough. Um, 89% of roofs typically in Ireland are already quite well insulated because it's kind of an easy measure to do because your attics are accessible. Walls, you know, we've pumped a lot of our cavity walls. Like if you have cavity walls, you can pump them. Otherwise, you're looking at dry lining or external wall insulation. The floors, ideally, because if you were the heat pump, you'd look at underfloor heating and you don't want to lose any of the heat from through the floors. You want to put it into the space and airtight measures. You can do a lot um, by just closing up a lot of the holes that come out of your building, you know, from waste pipes. Um, um, if you have old floorboards, you can um, use a rubber and put them in between the floorboards. The air tightness is probably one of the low cost, high impact measures you can do. But you basically go as far as you can go and you can afford to go because all of that means the heat pump runs at lower temperatures, which means it runs at a lower cost. So then so that it's always a good idea to go for deep retrofit if you can afford it, is it? Or one hundred percent. Because, you know, if we're looking, um, and I know we're going to talk about the, the energy performance recast in a while, but from 2030, the energy performance directive is not now going to be on how much energy you use. It's going to be on how much um, emissions you emit, how much carbon dioxide your dwelling emits. So if you have a heat pump, you're going to benefit from the greening of the grid. And if you have a heat pump, maybe in tandem with PV, as the grid improves, your energy rating is going to improve. But if you have a fossil fuel boiler, as the rating scheme develops, you're going to just slide down that scale continually because the scale is going, the tail of the scale is going to get longer. Heat pumps are going to be better and fossil fuels are going to be punished under the new regime. Okay. So, so does it, but does it like, if you're going to be insulating your house to the hilt and making it really airtight and have a good ventilation system in there, do you, the heat pump would be mostly for hot water then, or like, would you need that much heating in the first place? Do you need to invest in such a high end? I've always, I've always had trouble with this idea of heat pumps and because they're very expensive to install as well. They are, um, but say, no, I have, the my house is a 200 meter square dwelling, but I have a heat pump that is only six kilowatts that's in. It's a small heat pump. And actually the running load for the house is actually only four kilowatts. The trick with a heat pump is to size them really, really tight to the load and then use the secondary heat source when it's very, very cold outside, like minus three, minus four degrees C. And then you can heat your water at nighttime using a nighttime electricity tariff. Um, and you, if you have underfloor heating, you heat that at nighttime as well. And that makes them very cost effective to run. But their efficiencies are, you know, th three, four times that of the most efficient boiler. And they're only going to get more efficient with time as the electricity grid gets more green. Your primary energy consumption, which your BER is rated against, is, is coming down as the grid, as more renewables get integrated into the grid. Yeah. So, mm. and hopefully with time as well, the heat pumps will become 
more affordable and the smaller the heat pump i guess the cheaper it is how much how much would that set you back how much do you remember how much you paid for yours <laughs> if that's I a actually, question i can I, ask. yeah i got mine under the sei deep retrofit scheme you know the grants are very good for heat pumps and and you know they're constant you know they're a key part of uh decarbonizing the building sector so the grants are quite generous um yeah what sometimes happens is there's a tendency to oversize them and you're putting too big a unit in and it's running it's not running at its most efficient speed because it's too big it's running at too low a speed for its compressor so a small heat pump sized correctly with a grant over the lifetime of the project, when you look at your electricity bills, you know, uh, my electricity bill for the last two months is only €149 Euro because you're using the heat pump correctly. Um, yeah. So you're already saving money from the time that it's in. Okay. So so how how was that grant process? Was it fairly straightforward? I suppose you, you being an engineer, it would have been easy for you enough to to go through that whole um the the jumping through all those hoops but how yes well I had I had a sort of equivalent of a one-stop shop only the one-stop shops are coming out now but um I um had I got my deep retrofit through Kingspan and they managed the whole process for me so it was really quite seamless Okay. And how, in terms of the grant and, and paying out, did you have to pay it out first and then they paid you back or was it, were the costs yes, covered? In three installments. Um, okay. So I had to pay half and uh, some up front, some at the interim and then some at the end. So it was manageable. Like it was costly, but it was half what it would have cost me otherwise. You okay. Know. Yeah. Yeah. So you got about half of the cost covered by them. And how much was it if you're okay with sharing that? Well, it was a hundred grand and I paid 50. Okay. Yeah. So it is it's a chunk of change. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, so then, um, so then always go for deep retrofit is, is the advice. There's never really a case to go shallow then, is there not? There's or... not really, you're in a way you're better off not going at all with shallow Um, in, in terms of the fabric. I would say in that case, you'd be better to invest in increasing the efficiency of your heating system. Um, you know, you're heating 70% of um, the costs of running a household in Ireland are on the heating system. And with very kind of low cost measures, you can save 20% in that heating system overnight by installing TRVs, um, looking at your heating pump. Your heating pump, believe it or not, is the fourth largest energy consuming product in the world because it's always trundling away there in the background when you have your heating system on. Um, using a good control system that would save energy 20% overnight and you're not investing heavily in the fabric and you're not locking in a suboptimal retrofit. People who, who don't do deep retrofit tend to be older people, um, you know, that just maybe don't see the value in their lifetime of doing the work. But if on sale of that house, on changeover of that house, it, probably deeper work would be done in any case. Um, yeah. so yeah, the shallow lot, lot, um, retrofit can just inhibit deeper work going forward. Okay. And, and, and in terms of, um, doing it right, I suppose that's the big thing, isn't it? I mean, there is, there is this whole thing of, um, skilling up the workforce and all that. Um, how can, how can you check that the work's done correctly? Because if you have a gap in insulation, you know, if, the boards aren't really tight or um 
you know, you could lead to condensation and things like that. So how how can someone who has no knowledge really check for that? You can't really, can you? You well, have to rely anything, on your one-stop shop provider. Yeah, a lot of the time, but, you know, KSN, KSN Energy, or I'm not sure it's KSN Energy, but KSN, the company, they at the moment have a contract for SCI and they inspect um and, you know, if a homeowner takes photographs of the work, as ta- you know, as it goes and progresses, there's a B or there's a helpline. You can always check everything. You can sanity check it with others. Good communication with your builder, um, asking questions. But anything that's grant aided is inspected. And if it's not done to standard, the works are redone before the grant is awarded. Um, so there's a huge amount of protection through the one-stop shop mechanism. So... If you're not confident of going it yourself, I'd certainly go through that one-stop shop route. Okay. So take photos is the thing if when you're going through it as well then to make sure. I would, and then you have the documentary evidence for your BR and mm-hmm. um, you've shown the upgrades and there's no ambiguity when it comes to certifying the property at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I looked a bit at your research and it looked like um, one of your papers were saying that um, rural one-off houses would probably benefit the most from deep retrofits. I don't know if I read that correctly or not, but is you did you did an analysis of rural housing versus like mm. how what's what's the profile of like would there be a bigger benefit for them or? What was, what was the paper? Well, I sort of always, when I look at research, I kind of, well, what's going to make the most difference to the climate change first? If it, you know, what's the, the heaviest hitter? And in Ireland, our predominant house type is rural dwellings. 40% of our, our dwellings are rural detached dwellings. And the majority of those are single, you know, your bungalow that we're all familiar with on, on the Irish landscape. So I focused on those as our predominant house type, but they also have the worst heat loss characteristic in that they have the largest surface area to volume ratio. So they have the most opportunity for heat loss through the fabric. And so I looked at those dwellings because if you could retrofit those dwellings to hit a, to fit a heat pump, you could fit a heat pump in any other dwelling because if you solve the hardest one to solve first and she proved that it worked, which I did, and that was back in 2010, you could you could show that a heat pump can be viably retrofitted into any other dwelling type. But at what cost, again, if if for your own house, it was, would you say, 200 square metres, which is fairly big, I suppose, Um it was a uh, hundred grand and then fifty percent grant aided. How much? I mean, for a detached house, that'd be like a four bedroom. It would the cost probably be... be less than that, slightly less than that, but I don't think much more. But EPCs, like under the new EPC scheme, all dwellings they're looking to harmonize the bottom G dwellings, the bottom 15%, but they're also looking to bring the furthest behind first. Um, So maybe bring a G up to a D. If you are looking at a dwelling that is as built and you're going to live in it for li- your life, you're, the, 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 the banks are looking at your ability and they're factoring that in um, when they're lending you money, your ability to repay, factoring in that cost under the expectation that under the regulations, you're going to have to bring that house up to uh, a higher energy rating in any case. 
So I think you're always looking at it. You know, if you're looking at an old house, you know, for modern standards of comfort and also to future proof the dwelling to enable it for a heat pump. You're looking to do it in the most cost effective way, but you do have to upgrade the fabric, reduce the air tightness and ideally put in a heat pump and ideally with um, PV, you know, towards the electrified economy. That's the only way you're going to have an A-rated house that's going to stay an A-rated house going forward. So, um, yeah, but it, I mean, I know I'm probably too skeptical about the whole thing, but like, is it is it really worth like the savings if you're going to spend that much money to upgrade, let's say your detached house um, over even, I know you were saying like elderly people might not see the return, but even for... For anyone, um, you know, you, how much are you really saving in electricity use? I, now, the carbon thing is is different. Obviously, we all want to help the climate. And from that point of view, it makes sense. But the economic argument isn't necessarily there, is it really? I mean. Yeah, well, the carbon case is four times that the economical case. But, yeah. Um, you know, I suppose being an engineer, I never considered any other route than making it the highest energy rating um, that you could in favour of reduced energy bills. Like, I suppose I'm in my 40s moving into the house. I have three kids. My plan is to live in this house for life. And so I considered it worth it. Um, it wouldn't have been able to afford the same level under without the certainly without the grant um probably would have had like I wouldn't maybe have PV on the roof without the grant wouldn't have been able to afford that but I certainly would have put the infrastructure in first so that in time you know as you know my kids become maybe less costly you could then invest in it um you know there's there's nothing you know we have the app and looking at the solar like 30% of our electricity use now is um provided through the PV and it's fantastic and it's Again, for two months, just six people living in this house at the moment, our electricity bill was 149 euro over a cold period of the year. And that was on a red meter, you know, it wasn't an estimated amount. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're looking at a poorly insulated dwelling, the cost of gas and oil is only going up. It's becoming less certain with geopolitical upsets such as Ukraine. There's yeah. no certainty there where you know the government is working to bring the cost of electricity down. You're reducing your impact on the environment. And, you know, I took a 1901 house and turned it into an A2 dwelling. And that legacy will last, outlast me, you know, um, for generations. Because 40% of greenhouse gas emissions come from the sector and three quarters of that come from houses. So the lion's share of emissions um, accounting for over 28% comes from households. So it's a major area that we need to consider to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I accept your argument on cost. Um, My thing is, if there's any way you can afford it, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, from from that point of view, but you you presented some some figures as well of, of um the showing that let's say G rated house um the more inefficient houses don't necessarily consume a whole lot more energy 
and then let's say a B or a C rated house in the sense that like I know I live in a in a really old house single glazing I can't change the windows kind of house and I I don't I mean I obviously don't put the heat on nonstop and the house isn't roasting that's for sure but um you know I, I, I my energy bills is something I can afford because I just don't turn the heating on as much so in actual fact does does upgrading the energy efficiency really reduce your use you know the, the, the weren't those figures what you were what were showing that um a g-rated home kind of consumes the same rate as what a b or c kind of in on average sometimes uh, not it's uh, it, the difference between actual and rated energy use um in actual fact it doesn't tend to no because g-rated dwellings tend it's single glaze tend to be older dwellings um that actually have quite a small floor area. So if you have a 10 kilowatt load and you divide that by a small floor area, um, you get a higher rating. If you know what I mean, per kilowatt hour of meter mm -hmm. squared, it's high. And sometimes with a bigger A-rated dwelling, a more modern typically dwelling, they're, they, the larger, through the tiger economy, we, we grew our floor area quite exponentially. We have like the fourth largest floor area in Europe you know we like our big houses but you could have an A-rated dwelling that is a you know it still uses 10 kilowatts same as your G-rated but it's divided by a much larger floor area so it does much better on the EPC scale or the BR scale than your G-rated dwelling but you can actually use the same amount of energy um, and it's to do with looking at it and dividing it by floor area and typically that discrepancy in floor area yeah. So, so, but at the end of the day, really, if you're looking at what we're consuming for energy wise, as opposed to what it says on paper on the energy rating, it's the same, really. It's the Isn't same. That what matters is it how is. Much it is. And that's why the recast of the Energy Performance Directive is looking now at emissions. So your 10 kilowatt emissions will be the same in your G rated as your 10 kilowatt emissions in your A rated dwelling. So that's the scale. That's what's going to change. They're going to focus on emissions and not energy. Um, I don't know whether it's going to be per meter squared or per dwelling. Per dwelling is a better metric than per meter squared because the meter squared skews the data to make, you know, to 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 make that discrepancy you highlighted, you know, and create that energy performance gap. Yeah, yeah. So 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 is that the the main headline change of the the? Yeah, EPBD? it's one of them. The other is that so by so that the the current scheme is going to stay in place on rated on energy till twenty thirty. But after that, it's um, going to be a Z building, a zero emission building will be an A rated building and um, a building that maybe has PV in the roof and can contribute to the grid will be an emission positive building. So that will be an A plus building. Now, this is only proposed at the minute. This is in the outline document. There's no, you know, that it'll be up to each member state how they actually formulate the EPC scheme in each country. Um, like at the moment, we've 31 different schemes across um, Europe and the EU, because while the Energy Performance of Building Directive prescribe it, it's up to the member states as how they implement it. Um, were they going to harmonize that, though? Wasn't it? Wasn't they're the going to harmonize the scale. 
So, okay. yeah, maybe they might seek to harmonize the methodology, um, but they're going to harmonize the scale. So what they've said is the bottom 15 percent across Europe will all be a 15 and then this is this idea of a just transition in bringing the furthest behind, reaching the furthest behind first, that all G-rated dwellings was going to be mooted, that they go to an F. But there's a new proposal now that they'd all go for a, a D. And that's being negotiated at the moment. And I think it depends on Spain or coming in on the presidency, what their view is on it. So it's not yet defined, but it's looking more likely that it'll be bringing everything up three points from a G to a D. Okay. Mm. And and so so would that mean then uh, someone who's built an A-rated house, let's say in the past couple of years, their house could become a B after this comes into force? Becomes- yes. Yeah. And it's if you have a fossil fuel boiler, it's likely that it will go down. Even more. But if you have a heat pump and PV, it's likely that it'll start to come up over time. So the EPC changes over time. And it used to last for 10 years, but um, I think it's above a C, it lasts for 10 years, but anything below a C uh, or it will last for 10 years, but anything below that will only um, last for five years before you have to get another energy rating. But that's only if you sell your house. Do you need to? Yes. Yes. But it has a legacy if it's bought, sold or leased. Um it's a lifetime. It's only valid. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So if you buy or sell something within that time frame, you don't need to get a new one. But if you do, then you would have to get a new one. It's a mm-hmm. five year time frame for poorly performing and a 10 year for highly performing. Yeah. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And, and on the topic of solar panels and they, the... the the draft of this uh, recasi PBD then is looking at um, kind of basically putting panels on most houses, isn't it? Anyway, Where, definitely new builds. Yes, definitely new builds by 2028. And the language in the, the document is where technically suitable and economically feasible. So <laughs> it's a bit of a cop out. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's it, Solar panels work when they're 30 degrees east and west of south, really. Um, so if you have a roof that's 30 degrees east or west or south, you should be looking to put PV. If it's due east or due west or due north, if it's not as economically feasible or viable. You know, some, if the more east and west they go, the, the, the angle of the panel needs to go horizontal. And but, say in an old roof, that's not suitable because it could end up taking your roof. But if you had a flat roof, 
On an extension, you could put east-facing panels or west-facing panels in a horizontal orientation. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, if you're building new, uh, generally speaking, you have you can decide which way your roof is going to face. Yes, and you like design that in, it could be a part. Of it, yeah, it? yeah, and it's really you know it's going forward. It's it's very very cost effective. Um, like I have a neighbor of mine and um, she loves her baths and her tumble dryer and she's able to heat her water and use her tumble dryer. She has an app that's showing um, when the um, sun is shining and she's still emission neutral, you know, so you change your behavior in the household to match when the sun is shining and when your system is generating and she's no regrets of that system. And, and she spent considerably more in her system than I would have on mine. I could only fit seven panels. And I think she has something like 12 panels on her roof. So right. it depends. You know, um, I use mine with a battery. So I charge the battery overnight on the cheap electricity tariff. And um, I discharge it in the morning and then it charges in the day. And then I get that to discharge between five and seven in the evening under those peak loads. Because, you know, in time, DSB or whomever your provider is, they're going to give you a higher tariff between seven and nine in the morning and five and seven in the afternoon when the grid is under pressure. Okay, so so but the the thing with PV panels as well is would it make like isn't there something about um in this recast um to to try to make it more of a community thing where you'd have, let's say, like, you you know, if you have your nine and your neighbor is 12, wouldn't it make sense to have like maybe 30 and share it, uh, you know, just to share the infrastructure? Wouldn't that be cheaper and a more efficient way of using it, even in terms of all the bits that go into batteries and not the best environmentally friendly? Yes, you, you you can use the grid, but you see that the issue with PV, I, you know, and that, that embodied carbon does come into it. So that's being considered in the global warming potential of your infrastructure. So it depends, like if you look at solar panels, it, you might have to think, consider where you buy them from. A lot of them come from China. China is a coal fired, um, predominantly grid. So they're quite energy intensive to manufacture in China. But if you bought your panel from Norway, who are predominantly hydro-powered electricity, the cost of developing them, the embodied carbon cost of developing them in Norway is less than that of China. So choosing where you buy your product from would impact embodied carbon. But that might be in time, there's a move towards considering all of that in the, you know, the rating of the product um, that you buy. But with PV, the highest generation is in the is the 12 o'clock in the day. And um, unless you're serendipitously using electricity at 12 o'clock in the day, you're not really reaping the advantage of having the PV panel on, on your roof. You have to store it for later use. So really, they work very well with batteries and they're they're not as cost effective, I would argue, without them. Okay. Um, but if, you know, again, all that embodied carbon that comes with the manufacturing, the harvesting, you know, that has to be regularized like anything, I suppose, in, in as things are developing. Um, but the microgeneration you spoke of, the, of one house positively contributing, again, that's caught in your house would be an A plus. And the government now are giving you money for, for the, the ex- power you export. I think it's 21 cent per kilowatt hour. Um, 
so you oh, then end up with good, yeah. it's pretty good you know yeah. and you end up with a credit on your bill so the mm. neighbor I spoke about she's not paying any electricity because she's contributing so much um into the grid so she's in credit I think about to 250 euro with her provider at the moment yeah uh yeah that's that's pretty nice Mm. <laughs> better get some mm. panels up and <laughs> um, <laughs> so for the pbd then the the draft the renovation side of things how is that going to impact people who have an existing house i mean there's a lot obviously for new builds it's easier because you're starting from scratch but um will there be obligations on people because there's talk of having to upgrade all this all this building stock but um you know if people can't afford it then sure it's not going to happen unless the government steps in, obviously, and pays for it. But well, the government do step in and pay for it. Um, for anybody that's on any grant scheme like fuel allowance, you know, and they get a hundred percent grant aided, uh-huh. um, for any retrofits. Um, the sort of higher end of the socioeconomic scale, you could argue that people maybe can afford it. Um, they tend to have bigger houses, though, so the cost is greater. In a sense, it's the middle that, you know, the the young families with kids that, you know, that are both time and cash um, poor, they are, the you know, the most affected um, by it. But certainly if you have a G-rated dwelling, you're going to have to get up. You're going to, you know, they're going to have to come up with schemes to support people and, the directive is very strong on this kind of green finance and that financing is a critical part of this transition. And it sets out a framework for how innovation should be handled and protections in, should be in place for tenants in rental housing to avoid renovations. There's a huge focus on language of just transition um, that it's happening in a fair way, leaving no one behind. And again, reaching the furthest behind first um, I think research has to be done as to how that's achieved. I know in some countries they have 100% grant schemes for everybody. Right, Maybe okay. the government might have to consider that. You know, the, a lot of that work is, is something that we're doing. The Irish Building Stock Observatory is looking at the state of the stock, where the stock is located. Um, we're getting to a point by using machine learning and AI of being able to look at the state of the stock quarterly to observe what type of dwellings and what type of, you know, of socioeconomic brackets are reacting to the renovation wave? Like which ones are moving? Which ones are moving rapidly? Which ones are moving slowly? Which ones are moving not at all? They're resisting the renovation wave. And by looking at those, we'll be able to maybe get under the bonnet of those to say, well, why are they hard to decarbonize? What are their characteristics? What specific policy measures are needed to, to be put in place to 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 get these dwellings to react to the renovation wave or, or move. It's kind of kind of the idea came from COVID and that we have nuanced policy that's reacting to data in a live way. Um, you know, Neffet um were reflecting the data and government were making policy in an agile manner to react um, to the data. So we would see the climate emergency as being, you know, really as urgent. And so that looking at the data and keeping an eye and observing the data and commenting on the data will allow politicians and policymakers to create nuanced policies to directly target, to ensure that just transition, to, to find out who's been left behind and why and how we help, how society and government policy helps that move. 
transition. When is the directive going to come into force? Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's an EU legislation framework, a legislative framework, and then it needs to be adopted into law by each member state. So it's due for publication in Q3, Q4 this year. And on average, it takes maybe 18 months to adopt it into Irish law. And then we will require an update to our billing regulations and the and the BR methodology. So maybe 12 months after that. So right, okay. it could be like late 2026 or sometime in 2026, which doesn't give you a lot of time between that and 2028 when you're have to have solar technologies on all new builds. Yep. Yeah. And and on major renovations, isn't it as well? Yeah, by 2032 for solar. 2032, yeah. Mm. Yeah. But um so just just the I suppose the last thing that we the last topic I guess was the the heating systems one. Um mm. so just in terms of optimizing your heating system in the home um what's what can people do like let's say if it's not necessarily an option to start investing in an energy upgrade um and they're on that data point where they're they're resisting the renovation wave what mm-hmm. what, what can they do to at least lower their bills is are there steps that are fairly straightforward very straightforward. And I always think this is the low hanging fruit. And there's a huge amount of emphasis on fabric, on PV, on these really, you know, high cost uh, measures. And, you know, I've often, you know, I titled a paper, it didn't get through, but I was saying the heating system, the forgotten system, you know, we have 70% of our bills, the lion's share of our bills is from our heating system. We use our heating system in Ireland to heat our space through radiators and heat our water through our calorifier or hot water tank. So 70% of energy is on the heating system, 40 to 50% of that is on space heating and 20 to 30% of that is on heating the hot water. So if the, again, I spoke about the circulation pump, you know, that's running all the way in the background. And it's the fourth largest energy consuming product in the world. And it actually accounts for five to 10% of your ESB bill or your electrical bill. Well, that's forgotten about. But these yeah. pumps, it, there was an EU Optimus um, project looking at the heating system. The pumps are typically three times bigger than what's required. Your boiler is 1.8 times the size it's required. And your radiators are typically 1.7 times the size it's required. So your your heating system is handling a lot more water than it requires, you know, to meet the load. So that costs in that you're heating a bigger volume of water up that's unnecessary and you're pumping a bigger volume of water than necessary around the system. So it's called hydraulic balancing and any plumber is able to do this. And it used to be standard practice years ago, but I think, you know, in the tiger economy, when we're building so many houses, the practice was a bit lost, you know, in favor of time. But you can just throttle down through the lock shield valve, which is on every radiator in your house, reduce the flow rate through your radiator so that it's balanced. That reduces the flow rate in your pump and it reduces the the amount of water that your boiler has to cope with. And by just doing that, you can save 20% of energy on your bill, uh, on your heating bill, which is 14% of your bill overall, typically. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's a really, yeah, 
Yeah, no, but that's really interesting because, you know, there's a lot of talk, especially with um, heat pumps, I suppose, but it, it would apply to any heating system, I guess, is is this undersizing. We are afraid to undersize because if it undersizes, then it works, it has to work too hard to, and then you're kind of burning out the system a bit too quickly and it's not efficient either. So, so I guess oversizing is just as bad then is what you're saying. Yeah, I would argue that oversizing is worse than undersizing because you could always add a secondary heat source in extreme weather conditions. And again, that's the way you should run your heat pump because it's a machine that has a compressor in it. It likes to run at the same revs per minute. Um, it doesn't like stop, start, stop, start. You know, there's a startup energy in starting and stopping that compressor. It's better to run that consistently at the same speed then on, off, on, off, on, off, which is what it would do if it's oversized because it's meeting the load very quickly and then it switches itself off again and then it starts and up again when the when the load drops. So it's it's you know it's just not the way to run them if you can help it. And even just on optimizing, you know, across Europe, everyone uses a heating system. So if everyone optimized their heating system in Europe, you'd save the same amount of energy that Ireland uses in a year. Right. Because it's such a ubiquitous system and it's such a large energy, you know, 70 percent of mm-hmm. your heat of your of your energy bill is on it. So any saving, it's a, it's a, it's the lion's share of the energy use. So any any saving there yeah. is, is more impactful. So so then in terms of the the installations, then is is there a way to make sure everything's done correctly and to the right sizing? What? Like what's you know what what can we do about that? Well, yeah, I suppose Especially you have to make for heat pumps. Yeah. yeah, you have to do the heat loss calculation from first principles. Really, you know, looking at the house, every house is kind of like a fingerprint in a way. You know, um, it's all facing a different orientation or this or that or different characteristics. Um, so you size it tied to the load with um, a secondary heat source when weather conditions are extreme. I heat my water only to 45 degrees C. Um, I don't heat it to 60 degrees C. Heat pumps don't like lifting high temperatures. I heat it to 60 degree once a week to scald it to kill legionnaires. Um, so legionnaires is why you would keep legion the avoidance, the avoidance of legionella growth would be why you would set a tank to 60 degrees. But that's a historical thing now. It's shown that it glow, grows at a slow rate. And so scalding it once a week to 60 is enough. And it makes no sense to heat something to 60 and then be thermostatically cooling it down to use it for a shower. Like we shower at 30, 35 degrees. So 45 degrees is plenty, if you understand, you know, the, yeah. you know, we shower all the time in this house. There's six people living here and 45 degree tank. Nobody has ever complained about it. And um, then, you know, the use, if you're using electricity, the integration of PV you know, so sometimes if you have excess PV, you can use that to heat the water in your tank mm-hmm. um, or at, but you heat that at night. So really, you know, to answer your question, what needs to be done industry wide? I think it needs we need innovation in the heating sector is really rapid. There's no such thing as a simple system anymore. And there's no such thing as a simple house anymore. It's very complex, you know, to meet all these requirements of the energy performance of building directive and the plumber is the expert, the plumbing craftsman is the expert in the in the residential sector. 
But in Ireland, we have no unified body that unifies plumbers. Uh, you have the OGII for gas and you have um, Oftech for oil, but you have no one institution that brings plumbers back and um, where they have to do continual professional development like engineers or architects. And I really think we need that um, for the sector because if you look at plumbing crafts and they might leave their apprenticeship you know, quite young in their early 20s, and now they're talking about we're pushing the retirement age out to 70. So the amount of innovations that happen in that time, it's very important to keep the plumbing craftsmen upskilled in all these innovations. And I think really that's a key factor for the, certainly for the residential sector. The commercial sector tends to be taken care of by building services engineers paid as part of the design team. But again, you know, the one-stop shops could be a mechanism where that design um, standards design calculations occur with the specification being given over then for the construction yeah but is there are there efforts to create a body like that to for, for the to my knowledge you know that eu optimist project i think i did that in 2013 or 2014 and um i was responsible for english-speaking countries across europe so uk and malta and ireland um and I wasn't able to roll out the learnings from the project through a CPD program because there was no body that facilitated that. But it was in other European countries at the time. And you could see like in Hungary, they could they were just rolling it out immediately. What was developed in the research was rolled out through the CPD. And in Ireland, it wasn't possible. So how about the NSAI? Could they? They develop have... the standards. They develop yeah. the standards, but the standards get published. And then it's up to the individual to but read they, and apply the they, standard. Uh, they also have a register of, um, let's say, the air tightness installers, and they they hold. Um, don't they have? Um, they have uh, yeah, the air tightness installers. I'm not aware for, of for plumbing for the heating system. Yeah, it seems yeah, when it accounts for seventy percent of your load, mm. and the line share like heat. Is the is is the elephant in the room when you're talking about energy, yeah. um, and it's really a huge sector and really needs a specific focus. Um, yeah, yeah, especially with all the upgrades that are happening now, for sure. Okay, dogs. Well, listen. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. No problem. Join us next time for more tips and advice from experts and self builders alike. And if you haven't already, subscribe to SelfBuild Plus. It'll give you full access to the selfbuild.ie website, including the SelfBuild Plus journey, which is your step-by-step guide to self-building and home improving. Your membership also gives you first access to all videos and podcasts, as well as access to our members-only Facebook group, which features regular Facebook Live events. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.